You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Ollie Southgate, and from the Broadway Podcast Network, this is Putting It Together. This month, things are obviously a little bit different. We can't talk about the business of Broadway right now without talking about a few other things that are top of mind in the current news cycle. Kelly, New York will ban gatherings of more than 500 people. That's including Broadway shows, and they're going to be restricting smaller gatherings. Now, the ban will begin at 5 p.m. tonight for Broadway theaters with a capacity of more than 500 and will go into effect for other venues starting Friday at 5 p.m. Governor Cuomo tweeting out that they are taking new actions to reduce the density of people across the state. Starting tomorrow night, gatherings with 500 people or more will not be permitted in New York State. Additionally, for facilities with an occupancy of 500 or fewer, they are reducing the legal capacity by 50%. Kelly, back over to you. Wow, huge, huge moves. But like we were just discussing, uh, perhaps no move is huge enough to really contain this. Julia, we appreciate it. Thanks. That was CNBC reporting that on Thursday, March 12th, 2020, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced an immediate and indefinite ban of all gatherings of 500 people or more in an attempt to slow the spread of the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, more commonly known as COVID-19 or simply coronavirus. With that, the Broadway League announced that all Broadway houses would go dark immediately and remain closed for a month until April 13th, a date that, at the time of recording, remains the official reopening date, but one that's widely expected to be delayed further. That's began what is now set to be the longest continuous suspension of performances in Broadway's history, one that has implications being felt in every facet of the business, with the viability of many productions at risk, and with that, sizable lists of Broadway and Broadway-adjacent businesses and thousands of jobs. So this month, I'm talking to not just one, but seven Broadway business leaders about how their line of work is impacted and what they're doing to weather this unprecedented storm. It's a once-in-a-lifetime sequence of events, so with it comes a once-in-a-lifetime series of conversations. So thank you for joining me for the first of, hopefully, just a few COVID-19 episodes of Putting It Together. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. 
It's a difficult time to be interviewing anyone, let alone Broadway's business leaders, so I kept the topics broad given how much uncertainty the industry is facing so early on in this process. I started at the very beginning by asking my guests about how they first got wind that the pandemic was going to have such major consequences for Broadway. First, here's Sue Frost and Randy Adams for Junkyard Dog Productions. They're the producers of Come From Away. Well, our first indication was uh, with the outbreak in China. Our Australian company was scheduled to uh, tour China this summer. And uh, as soon as we got word of what was happening in Wuhan, we started the conversations about shutting that tour down, postponing it, actually. It has been postponed to 2022. Uh, But uh, we had to figure out what we were going to do. If we were going to do anything in the meantime, just shut it down. So we started that work. And we didn't know how how quickly it was going to move, quite frankly. I think it took everybody by surprise. Yeah, we were actually in London when uh, all of it began to sort of come down for Broadway. We were just getting ready to fly back on that Thursday when ultimately uh, all the shows were closed down. And now Chris Harper, the producer of Company. His show was in its second week of previews when the closure hit. They're still waiting to find out when it might be possible to open. I remember first reading about the coronavirus in January and thinking, hmm, what might that mean? But, you know, we've encountered all sorts of things like this before in the theatre, but never quite on this scale. So, you know, I mean, there's certainly been a number of instances when I've been producing shows in London that I've had. So I was a little nervous that this might impact us, but didn't really believe it would impact us to this degree. So I think initially I had a rumbling in January, and it was while we were actually in, um, sort of heading towards previews in February, actually, I bumped into another colleague and I said, you know, I just hope this whole thing isn't going to knock us sideways. Let's hope it can be contained. And he said to me, it can't be contained, Chris. And that kind of made me stop dead in my tracks. And the whole journey uh, in the taxi to the theatre that night, I kept thinking, can that be true? Can it be true? So it was really niggling away at me for pretty much all the way through previews. Actually, even earlier through the technical in the run-up to previews. Here's Bonnie Comley and Stuart Lane, the founders of Broadway HD. Stuart also co-owns Broadway's Palace Theatre. You know, it's not like we had any, uh, you know, advance notice. I think we were the same as everyone else that you are, you know, hearing rumblings about something and then then all of a sudden we're all shut down. Um, so I think that, I mean, it was a surprise to everyone. I, Stu, do you, I mean, unless Stu had some knowledge I didn't know about. <laughs> no, you know, we, we have, a, you know, our, our initial mandate was to preserve and celebrate the live theater and to capture that and, and try and recreate that experience for those who couldn't, couldn't afford to get there either financially or physically. Uh, now we're being cast as the preservers of Broadway in the West End. Fortunately, we've been prepared for uh, this whole season, so we're well booked on Broadway HD between now and uh, into next year. Brian DeVito is Director of Ticketing and RCI Theatricals, the general management company. He's also an investor and co-producer on a number of other shows. In Broadway, we always measure things in week endings. So certainly by the time we got to a week ending March 1st, um, we were starting to see some differences in sales patterns for our client productions, um, not just in the calendar month of March, but certainly bleeding into April and May, and then a fall off into the summer tourist months. Uh, the first thing that we were starting to look at uh, was the fall off in sales for performances three, four, or five weeks out. So at that point in time, it wasn't impacting their purchase process for the next couple of weeks. We actually saw our sales for the next week or two of performances remain consistent. 
but we did see that the average Broadway buyer was starting to shift um, and maybe not purchase so far in advance. And finally, Kate Canova. Her producing projects are all in early development stages right now, but I spoke to her because I wanted to know how this is going to impact all the shows that are currently still trying to get off the ground. Believe it or not, I've been watching this situation very closely since early December um, because my husband's business, their supply chain is 100% dependent on China. And we were starting to get some rumblings very early on that were impacting his business, even, you know, towards the end of the year and and into January as their partners were getting ready to um, break for the Lunar New Year, which we know happens every year. But I started to get a strange feeling when the vendors from China were coming to us and telling us that they were going to be sending their employees home early. And so I started to get that little prickly feeling um, when, you know, something wicked this way comes. So, unless you had business in China, you found out when everybody else did. Maybe a few days before the shutdown, perhaps a couple of weeks, but ultimately, not long enough. So what next? You know, the anxiety started to build when we started to really think about what social distancing meant. Uh, should our should our cast be doing stage door? Uh, you know, all of those things that were sort of rolling out on a day-to-day basis. And it was really, I think at that point, we started to feel like, you know, it's just a matter of time. And I think it was when it was revealed that uh, an usher at the Booth Theater had come down with the virus. When the news came about that usher. When that usher tested positive. They're talking about the March 11th news in a joint statement from the Schubert's and the Nederlanders, Broadway's biggest theater owners, that an usher who had recently worked at their theaters had just tested positive. I was actually doing the double header of The Inheritance that day. Um, as soon as I saw that come out during intermission of the show, I said, you know what, this is definitely it. I think that escalated things significantly. Yeah, I think the entire community was pretty much on edge by then. I kept thinking, no, absolutely not. This can't happen. This can't happen. It won't happen. It'll somehow it'll be contained. But arguing with myself about it the whole time, I was kind of having a real kind of wrestle with myself. I thought perhaps we might make it to the Saturday of that week, but obviously we didn't, and we shut down the very next day. In a way, it was a relief because we had been trying to manage it. And really, the best way to manage it was to stop and let everybody go be safe. This isn't the first time theatres have faced an unexpected halt in business or a shutdown. There's SARS, union strikes, 9-11. All these things have put a stop to shows going ahead before. So I wanted to know from this group, who between them have literally hundreds of shows worth of experience, maybe over a thousand, but I didn't actually do the math. Are there any learnings from those past experiences that they thought about applying in that exact moment? The answer? A resounding, not really. Here's Brian DeVito again. This is definitely a new frontier for us. We've gone through periods where certain demographic groups or certain geographic groups um, have maybe had different economic changes within uh, a tourist home country, but we've never seen anything that has been an even effect across all different types of Broadway audiences and all different profiles of uh, the type of buyer that we welcome here in New York. Bonnie Comley. It's very different than the other challenges that we've had. I think that, you know, both Stu and I lived through 9-11. We had shows on Broadway then, um, but Broadway was only down for two nights at that time. Um, And again, it's the, you know, the Broadway community was very cohesive and they shut down at the same time and then they rose back up at the same time. Uh, We were also doing a show in uh 2007, uh, when there was a a strike, and that was for I believe it was close to three weeks. And again, everybody managed to work things out, and we went back up again. Um, this is it's just 
scary. It's not a, it's not something that you can see. And here's Kate Canova again. I truly do think that this is unprecedented. Um, we have never seen something that is so pervasive. You know, this is not just a matter of a few theaters in New York being shut down. I mean, this is literally the grinding to a halt of sort of the, the cultural wheels of the world. It's not just a few theaters here. It's regional theaters. It's touring productions. It's concert venues. Sue Frost and Randy Adams. I think it's really its own beast, honestly. But what we do know is that people are always going to want to experience live theater. They're always going to want to, they're going to want to come back. We don't know how quickly uh, and we don't know what that's going to look like. But I think people are going to be very hungry for shared experiences. They're going to be very hungry for coming back together. Uh, I think we've seen that whether it was after 9-11, you know, one of the first things that happened was the theaters came back up because that was a signal back to the world. And even though I I think that what's different about this is this ongoing uncertainty of just how long it's going to go on. That's certainly going to be our challenge as we come back is how quickly are people going to be able to feel safe and and how how long is it going to take to get those theaters reopened? And what else might we have to do to make them feel safe? Here's Chris Harper. And really, although he kind of glosses over it, he came right out of the gate with the answer I was looking for. Well, I'm the very unfortunate producer that's had two shows in London where there was a ceiling collapse, first on Curious Incident, secondly on Death of a Salesman. Of course, I don't want to sound gleeful about any of this, either the current situation on Broadway or the incidents Chris is referring to, but this was at least a light bulb moment. I had completely forgotten when I asked to speak to Chris that he's done this before, by which I mean closed a commercial theatre production for six months and gone through the process of bringing it back. An investigation has begun into how a ceiling at a theatre in London's West End collapsed, injuring almost 80 people. The audience at the Apollo was watching a performance of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime on Thursday evening, when heavy plaster work and parts of balconies came crashing down on top of them. It's thought that water may have dripped through cracks in the ceiling. In 2013, a part of the roof of the Apollo Theatre in London fell during a performance of the National Theatre's The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Chris was the producer. After a six-month hiatus, the production reopened at another theatre, the Gielgud, where after building an advance again up from nothing, it ran for over 1,500 more performances. It even went back to the West End again last year. So, in all this uncertainty about how producers are supposed to reboot their productions after a closure of basically indefinite length, if anyone has a comparable point of reference, it's Chris. I feel fairly well drilled in crisis management, but um, nothing can quite prepare you for this. But I think I think producers are quite well drilled at crisis management anyway. So I think, you know, what we have to do is to constantly figure out how to solve problems. That's what we do. You know, there are a number of things I learned from having the ceiling collapse on Curious Incident and more recently, Death of a Salesman. Insurance is your very best friend at this time. And, you know, we were very fortunate that we have an incredible insurance policy for the company. So it will help protect and ensure that we are able to show back because we're going to be dark for some time. It may be six weeks, maybe three months. It may be six months. We just don't know at this point. But um, we've got an insurance policy that can help protect us in terms of bringing the show back. So for me, it's all about being prepared for the eventuality that something might go wrong. And that's what we are fortunate to have with the insurance policy company. 
Sorry if you missed any of that. The quality of the phone line I was on with Chris was not the best. He was on a cell phone across an ocean. But what he's getting at is that those past unfortunate experiences have taught him the importance of insurance policies. It's something that the business minds of Broadway have been talking about a lot amongst all of this. But what exactly does a policy like that cover? How much of the financial blow of all of this are shows going to be able to mitigate? First, Sue Frost gives some context, then Brian DeVito, who, as the ticketing guy at a GM office, is responsible for getting a lot of those numbers together, talks about how that process is going in its earliest days. Each show has their own insurance. Um, We're not privy to everybody's uh, insurance deals and what they choose to to pay. Most insurances cover uh, expenses and um, some kind of revenue interruption. Um, but it really depends on the company. There's no universal insurance policy for Broadway. We've not formally submitted any claims. We're still in the, the information gathering and the information synthesis process. Um, what I believe will be sort of the biggest challenge for us is not necessarily looking at the expense side of any equation, but when we look at what the potential lost box office revenue might be for shows. And every show across Broadway is going to look at that very differently. So if we were to break shows down into three specific categories, you have your long running hits, which have very reliable year over year data. And even having a conversation with someone who might not intimately understand the way that our accounting or that our business cycle works, it might be easy to show them a case where this is what our box office grosses were last February, last March, last April. Here is what our box office grosses were this February, say up 2%. So let's say that our box office grosses in March and April would have been up that same 2%, right? We were pacing to be up 2% year over year. That's in theory, a straightforward way to look at lost box office revenue. This, though, is where things get more complicated. If you're a long-running show, as Brian says, where you have at least a year or two of proven sales, you can make a pretty clear case as to how much you would have made in these weeks where you've ended up not performing. But how do you prove your dollars and cents if you're one of the newer shows, in which case you need the insurance coverage even more, because you haven't yet had time to establish your presence on Broadway? Say you have a show that's open six months. You're only looking at box office data from outside of the holiday period, a traditionally softer time of year and a time of a show's life when it's really starting to gear up. The biggest challenge, however, is for that last third of shows, and I know they're both shows that we work on right now, that we're just getting into their footing now, shows that were part of this spring season. So some shows um, maybe haven't opened yet, some may have not even started performances yet, Um, some may have not spent a good portion of their advertising dollars yet. Let me tell you something about me at this point. I'm an analyst at one of the larger Broadway advertising agencies. I'm 10 years into my career this July, and every job I've ever had has, in some way or another, been related to sales or ticketing. And as Brian was describing all of this to me, the hairs went up on my neck. Because in all of my experience, when I'm putting together any kind of projection or forecast, as I often am, it's always been for people who get it, people who know that the kinds of assumptions I'm making are sound. This holiday week will do about X percent more because we're a movie property musical with a big star, the Tonys are that date so we'll have a good rep the day after, etc. But the trouble is, what shows have to do now is prove out those numbers to their insurance companies, not their colleagues. To people sitting at computers making cold, hard decisions about risk and accountability without any of the context of what it is to run a Broadway show. So this time, you don't have the room full of people who know exactly why you added 50k here or took off 100k there. You have to show every single step of your workings to prove that you haven't just made up a huge number so they'll pay you out for as much as possible. Brian continues. Thinking about how we forecast box office revenue 
for shows 10 weeks from now that have not yet started performances. That's the biggest challenge. And I think that's going to be one of the larger challenges for folks like myself to make those claims to the insurance agents, because you don't necessarily have years and years of data um, where you can make that easy mathematical case. So then you have to ask the question, right? With everyone, not just Broadway shows, but basically anyone who relies on tourists or even just people gathering in one place, asking for these insurance payouts all at the same time, how are the odds looking? I think the only thing that we know about the insurance process at this point in time is that it will be a long and arduous one. I've been in the Broadway landscape for about seven and a half, eight years now within a general management office for about the last six months. And my experiences with insurance prior to this were shows simply wondering if it made sense for them to take advantage of their policy. So for the average Broadway show, there's a two performance deductible before insurance um, goes into effect in a, in a business interruption manner. So say we're talking about last winter, there's a snowstorm, one performance, maybe two performances are canceled. You might have a conversation about insurance for a few minutes, but then quickly realize that it doesn't make sense for you to enact a policy. So at this point in time, all shows certainly know that they will be enacting their business interruption policies. There are certainly different policies that exist that shows have had the ability to take out. So the first step was a lot of detective work looking at the fine print and the details um, of all of those different policies. The first step, um, which thankfully we got very quickly here in New York, was the um, government mandated shutdown of the theaters. And that was the sort of impetus or the inflection point that allowed us to um, sort of turn that policy on or start the ticker on it, if you will. But yeah, at this point in time, we're doing a lot of the information gathering, um, looking at what the expenses could be for the shutdown. And of course, at this point, we don't know exactly how long the shutdown will be, but we're looking at what those expenses are during the hiatus and then starting to think of what lost revenues could be for our shows and doing all of that arithmetic together. Bonnie Comley and Stuart Lane are the exception to the rule in terms of the people that I spoke to for this episode. They founded Broadway HD some six years ago, a Netflix-style streaming platform for the handful of Broadway shows that have been professionally filmed and approved for distribution. My more loyal listeners will remember, I interviewed Bonnie at length back on episode 4 in December of last year. Although they used to produce shows full-time, these days most of their time is spent on the digital capture and online distribution of Broadway productions. And although I didn't ask this explicitly, I assume that means they're one of the businesses that's going to thrive through all of this rather than suffer. Broadway HD is one of the only places you can even see a Broadway show right now. First though, I asked how they're managing that, how they're making smart decisions to remind people that they exist in spite of all of this, without being seen as someone who's taking advantage of a devastating moment for all of their colleagues in the wider business. Well, we started Broadway HD um, uh, probably about six years ago. We started building the website. So we're not a company that's coming in to take advantage of a bad situation. We're a company that has been building and building um, our subscriber and our audience um, around the world with the content that we've been able to um, either shoot or acquire and license from other organizations around the world. So we're doing business as usual. Um, and what we've always said is that Broadway HD and any digital capture is not a replacement for theater. It's not an alternative to it. It's additive. So as I said earlier, it just, it whets your appetite to go back to the live. And we've always said, if you can't get to Broadway, then go to Broadway HD. And we didn't know that the whole world would know what it feels like at the same time 
to not be able to go into a theater. There's a, a mourning, there's a sorrow, there's a, a big piece of your life missing if you're a theater fan. So even though Broadway HD is just up and still running, we're trying to keep the audience engaged with this art form that they love. Now it's more nostalgic, I think, when people are looking at it and saying, like, I can't wait to get back and go see these shows again. But they are um, definitely, you know, enjoying the content that we do have. We have over 300 uh, full-length stage plays and musicals. You know, it, it, again, it's just it's just increasing the appetite and um, heightening their their awareness of how lucky they were to be able to go and see live shows. Yeah, and Ollie, we are actually working with the theater community. Uh, several companies, the uh, Berkeley Rep and the ACT in San Francisco, just to name two, uh, and extending their season to their subscribers by showing their shows that they shot on our website. So we're trying to work with the community to keep the spirit of Broadway alive, West End alive, to everyone, not just subscribers. But I think this COVID crisis has got people that weren't necessarily Broadway fans. It's got them looking to say, hey, what's out there? So those people are looking to us. So there's like, it's actually broadened who's aware of Broadway shows now, because you just sometimes you just don't know what you have till it's gone. Indulge me for a second here whilst I quote Joni Mitchell. I mean, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? And there's been so much talk in these last few weeks about how Broadway evolves to be available digitally whilst the real thing isn't feasible. Fans are calling for streams of shows, but the truth is, if that recording doesn't already exist, in most cases, it's too late. To stream a performance now would still require hundreds of people to come together at the theatre. Sure, you don't have to worry about a potentially contagious audience, but between the show's regular cast and crew, plus the enormous team it takes to make a decent quality filmed version of a show, camera operators, sound experts, film directors, the list goes on. That's a lot of people to gather together in one place, almost certainly more than the current state rules allow for. So I asked a blunt question of Bonnie and Stuart. Is the lesson here that every show should be making a high-quality recording of their show part of their general opening expenses, just in case we ever find ourselves in this position again where live performances aren't possible? You have to look at every show as a separate business. So I think that to say every blanketly everyone should do a digital capture or blanketly everyone should not, it's just simplifying it. I think that um, you have to look at your show and decide, is this the right time uh, to do a digital capture? But Stu and I do believe that every show that makes it to Broadway has the production values there that they should make a capture of it. Um, and then they should decide when is the right time to release it? When is the right time to distribute it? Um, how do they distribute? Is it, you know, geo-blocking it around the globe as a live tour goes out? Um, so I think it's a bigger conversation. Um, but I do think that this unfortunate situation that we're in is making people look at digital differently. No one is looking at Broadway HD or any of the digital captures or any of the live streams that people within the industry is doing and saying, oh, okay, that's fine. I don't ever need to go back to the theater again. What it does is what we've always been saying at Broadway HD as it just increases your appetite to get back to the live. So all the, you know, the living room concerts that we're seeing, all the podcasts that we're hearing, all these things are just propelling people to a, a heightened sense of uh, desire to get back into the theater shoulder to shoulder with people. 
So that's the shows that are supposed to be performing right now. We're all too aware that there's damage being done to productions that we're expecting to be on Broadway as I record this, and instead find themselves sitting at home with the rest of us waiting for more news. But that's not the whole picture. The economic impact of COVID-19 is far more wide-reaching than that. Stock markets are in free fall and all kinds of businesses are in crisis until the situation starts to recover. And that causes a problem for a group of people very important to Broadway. Investors. These are the people who usually make the bulk of their money in businesses far less turbulent than theatre, and use those profits to fund their interest in something that's much higher risk, on the basis that it's much more interesting to be a part of. That's where Kate Canova really comes in. At the moment, she has a number of projects in the works, almost all of which are so early on in development that they're in that, I can't say too much, but phase. She has the clearest perspective on what the broader financial impact of this pandemic means to people she relies on to be willing to make these high-risk investments, and what that means for shows who are maybe a few years away from being on Broadway. When you look at investors, you know, they kind of fall into different categories, either of, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, different categories of sophistication in terms of previous investment in the theater, previous investment in general, you know, a lot, sometimes it's a friends and family connection, that kind of thing. So there's sort of a wide spectrum of the different kinds of theatrical investors that there are. The common thread that runs throughout, however, is a, a healthy access to disposable income. This virus, as much as it's a health crisis, I mean, this is a, what's ostensibly amounting to an, a global economic collapse. The the trillions of dollars that have been sucked out of the stock market, um, you know, the brokerage accounts and the retirement funds and the disposable income, you know, all of these sort of sources to which these investors go feel like they are now in a precarious position. And what happens is in times of uncertainty, people are going to choose to invest differently. Um, Their tolerability for risk, their appetite for risk, changes. So there's a couple of things going on. Not only is is sort of the pool of people that we're going after now probably going to be more hesitant in terms of um, feeling comfortable, but the funds themselves are going to be fewer. I mean, it's going to take a long time, I think, to, for things to sort of bounce back. Um, so available funds, generally speaking, will be less. And then what you have are all of these people who are trying to make art and to make theater you know, they're now having to compete even more for investment dollars from uh, potentially a smaller pool of investors or a smaller pile of money. So that is sort of one layer of, of complexity. However, you know, the flip side of that is, is that, you know, in times of uncertainty, in times of grief, you know, people really do gravitate to the things that bring them joy and that sort of elicit an emotional response. And I think, you know, we're seeing it already, not just within our own community, who, I mean, has taken to social media um, like no other to provide joy and laughter and song and music and dance. And people are, you know, teaching dance classes in their quarantine yurts and, you know, all of these amazing things. Um, you know, people crave that human connection. You see it, you know, in these videos that are being posted from France and Spain and Chicago and now here in New York City of people, you know, clapping and shouting out their windows and on their balconies to, to say thank you to the healthcare workers. Like people are desperate for communion and community. And that is something that our community provides better than anyone, I would argue. So there will be those people, there will be that backbone of investors and producers and managers and creators who will make it their life 
life's mission to get the business back to where it needs to be. Because, you know, we as a civilization, we, we require this food um, for our souls, for our well-being. This is, you know, this is what separates us from the animals. This is what, what brings us our humanity. And so th- there will be those torchbearers that will do everything that they can to kind of resurrect the business and breathe new life into it, you know, and, and those of us who are producing and managing and and raising funds, it's going to be up to us to kind of look beyond and identify kind of new investors and, and, and new blood to, to add into the mix um, in order to support the investment dollars that have been lost. As I mentioned earlier, as well as his work at RCI, Brian DeVito raises funds as a co-producer in his own right. So he has similar concerns. We can't afford to have investors get burned, so to speak. Um, if the average investor might be a part of two or three shows any given season, I mean, say that investor is putting in on average $50,000 into each of those productions, to have a full season of investment wiped out could certainly have broader impacts as we look forward to the 2021 season and beyond. On the surface, I think it means that institutional money will play a bigger role in our space, certainly for the next two or three years, whether that be studios coming to the plate, organizations who have not yet participated in the Broadway space, but have different access to capital. Uh, I also think that we are certainly in a period where the types of structures and deals between co-producers and their investors might be a little bit different. I, I could very much see circumstances where for the next season, um, producer or co-producers might pass on a percentage of their producing points um, to investors on certain projects. But I also think more than ever, we'll be looking at projects that have really strong balance sheets, more so than we may have done over the last season or two, simply because we will want to see strong paths to recruitment at maybe not 85% of box office, um, but 70% or 65% of box office, knowing that the recovery you know, might take more than 12 or 16 weeks once the hiatus ends. Although we all feel like we've been cooped up at home far too long already, the truth is, with the information we have from the CDC, from the WHO, from Cuomo, this is most likely just the beginning. At the moment, most of the shows I touch, at least, are looking to potential reopenings in the summer, at the very earliest, if not the fall. With that in mind, the fact that we've still got a long way to go, I wanted to talk about a brighter topic, what the light at the end of this tunnel looks like, even if we don't know exactly how long the tunnel itself is right now. So I asked my guests, without speculating blindly on when it will come, what do you think the other side of this looks like? Are we looking at a comeback where half the seats are empty? Or will those of us desperate to get back out into the real world make up the shortfall for those who are going to take a lot more convincing that a theatre is a safe place to go? You go to the theatre, you go to a restaurant, you park your car, you're spending money again. That's going to be important. I think that, you know, that the state and the city will be responsive to that. I think... As always, they will understand that theater is a is an economic engine for this city. Broadway is an economic engine for this city. And, and the sooner we get ourselves back up and running, the sooner we get back to some kind of normalcy. And um, that's going to be all of our responsibilities collectively as an industry to figure out how we do that. It's not going to be just show by show. We're all going to have to figure this out together. Now, it's really going to take everybody working together to make it happen because uh, it's going to take that collective effort to see what uh, you know, what it's going to be like and take it from there. And hopefully in the end, it will all be better than ever. But I think for a while, we're all going to be finding out what it is. Well, I think there'll always be theater and there's always going to be a desire for it. Uh, I think it's going to be a 
a, so, you know, a gradual comeback as the public gets used to dining out again and going to bars again, uh, albeit less crowded. You know, I, I think there'll be less uh, stadium events for sports. It, it, it's hard to predict until we know we have a vaccine or we don't have a vaccine and how long this, would pers- this will persist. Certainly, there'll be ways around it. I mean, already you can see the, the medias, the other medias are dealing with it with uh, no audiences for the, the uh, Tonight Shows. They, you know, they're, they're trying to cut back on any kind of scale of people. And I think things will loosen up and maybe down the road, we'll find some more creative ways of doing things uh, that we haven't done before, like creating our own you know, live sequence in a studio with just a handful of people and cameramen. Even if you put on a show now, I mean, there will be people that might go to the show right now because people like to kick against something. You know, I'm back here in London now. I just got to London once the theatre closed on Broadway. And there are people still going out of the house. And you think, what, what, is going on? Why are people doing that? Why are they absolutely not just staying at home and doing the things that we all need to do to try and contain the virus? But so I think there will always be someone and a contingency of people that will want to go out and will want to just go, I don't care, I'm going to live my life. I, I'm not sure that is the largest audience that we'll be chasing. So whether there are those people that want to go out regardless to fill multiple theatres eight times a week on Broadway, I would be unsure about. At this point, I think that we don't know what shape the recovery will take, whether all shows come back at the same time, whether we come back with restrictions on how many people can be in the theater at any given time. So as we think about what shape the recovery takes post-hiatus and what those audiences ultimately look like, I think everyone would agree that the first audiences which will raise their hands will be New Yorkers, simply because we're used to being in sort of tighter spaces in general, right? We're used to being a little bit more um, together, even in, in regular life. Um, we also know that domestic and international tourism will certainly take a hit. Even if we were to come back on in the middle of the summer, um, the typical levels of support that we have for those audiences in summer shows won't be there this year. So I think we know that New Yorkers will be the first to raise their hands. Pushing that forward, I think the shows that will experience the best recovery will be shows that naturally appeal toward a New Yorker audience. So shows like, you know, two, three or four actor plays, which have lower running costs and an appeal to that traditional, stereotypically New York based audience. Um, might be in a good shape when we come back because their audience profiles won't be changing all that much. However, when we look at some of the very large, very mass market, very sort of out of town audience driven musicals, the shows where their box office figures uh, rise strongly during spring break weeks and during the seven weeks of the summer, those shows uh, might have to be a little bit more clever and creative because the traditional audience demographic that really lifts them up in the summer months might be a little bit diminished this year. As things stand, at the time of recording at least, which I say because things could change any day now, the Broadway League hasn't officially given a new timeline beyond the initial April 12th closure date, and that's because, I assume, they don't have any more information than we do, or the state does. 
The virus is just as unprecedented, just as unpredictable, as the closure of every Broadway theatre was last month. And as painful as it is for artists, for managers, and for people like me, to be told that theatre is very far down the list of priorities right now, unfortunately it's true. Chris Harper said this on the topic, which stuck with me. I think ultimately we need to be looking at this as a long-term goal rather than a short-term objective. So we need to be comfortable, all of us as human beings, that we are going to be safe and our health at risk if we are congregating in large numbers. So I think the primary concern for me as a human being is safety of ourselves, of our families, of our creative team, of our actors and our people working on the show. And if we can that it's fine, then we're going to be able to convince an audience to come back. But as foreboding as the circumstances seem right now, as blurry as the finish line for it is, Broadway will come back from this. I, for one, am counting on it. Everybody I spoke to for the show this month had something different to say, which is why I was so pleased to speak to such a broad range of people. But the common theme was this. There is no universe in which Broadway, one way or another, does not recover from this. To that end, I want to finish with one last clip from Kate Canova. But before that, a huge thank you for listening and for continuing to take an interest in the business of Broadway during these crazy and uncertain times. I'll be continuing to make episodes about the impact of coronavirus on Broadway as a business until we're back on. So if you'd like to participate in this series or just let me know what you think, please get in touch. You can find my contact info at ollysouthgate.com. That's Ollie with an I-E. I'd love to hear from you. And I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review the show on whatever podcast platform you happen to be listening on. Apple Podcasts is the main one where it makes a difference, but every little helps. I'll see you next month, but for now, stay safe. And here's Kate Canova. Do I think it's going to be easy? No. Do I think it's going to be fast? No. Do I think we may emerge out of this with some different business models? Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's very likely that we might start to see work in six and eight and 12 and 24 months time that is of a caliber that we haven't seen in a long time. You know, and I know that there's something that's sort of been making its way around the internet these days about how in the time of Shakespeare, when the plague came to London and they shut the theaters down, that was when Shakespeare changed his focus and and some of the best poetry and the best sonnets that he ever wrote came out of a time when the theaters were closed. And so, you know, I'm going to hold that close to my heart and I'm going to be really excited for what's to come. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Putting It Together is produced by Jory Berenstein and Alan Seals for the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Euless Pekan, with additional music from this episode coming from Remember the Future, High Street Music, and Jason Zambito. Artwork and editing is by me, Ollie Southgate. For more information on the show, visit bpn.fm slash puttingittogether. See you next month. Hi y'all, this is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.